Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi, I'm Aaron Weinacht. I'm here with the New Books in Russian Studies, and I'm talking today with John Eddy, who has written a book on graphic satire in the Soviet Union. So thank you for being with us, John. Thank you. Could you give us a little bio on yourself, where you went to school, who you studied with, what you worked on, and your, your thesis work, and so on? Okay, uh, so my undergraduate degree uh, was in the UK. Uh, in history, and then I became a high school history teacher and uh, realized pretty quickly that I wanted to go back and do further study, but it took me a little while to get organized. Um, but I, I did manage that, and I did a, a master's degree at the University of Leeds, uh, supervised by Paul Cook and Vlad Strikoff, and I was interested there in uh, in, in, the, in the role and the depiction of aviation in socialist realist easel painting in the 1930s and early 40s. Uh, and when I finished that, I realized that I, I, I still wasn't done. And so I carried on uh, at the same university with the same supervisors. But this time I was more interested in, uh, should we say, less, less serious depictions um, and so I became interested in graphic satire and political cartoons in particular in the Soviet Union. And I moved on, although although my, my study involved uh, investigation of images from, from the whole Soviet period, really, I was primarily focused on the, the immediate post-Stalin decade. So sort of 1953, four to around about 1964. Probably most people are not going to be familiar with the specific uh, satirical magazine Crocodile. So uh, would you be able to do just kind of a general background on, on the magazine for the uh, for the uninitiated? Sure. So uh, Crocodile um, was created in 1922. Initially, it's created as a... a a, a sort of a, a sub magazine, really, uh, uh, a magazine that appeared inside a newspaper as a kind of uh, supplement. Uh, and from the beginning, it 
included large numbers of political cartoons, satirical drawings and so on, and articles, uh, feuilletons, uh, letters and so on. Within 13 issues, the supplement had become so popular that it, it sort of warranted its own publication and so it became an independently numbered journal. Uh, and from then, really, from the early 1920s right the way through until the end of the Soviet Union, uh, Crocodile became the uh, Soviet Union's primary satirical magazine. So when I talk about a, a satirical magazine, I mean uh, something a little bit like a comic book, but obviously uh, primarily political in its in its outlook and in its content. So something like Mad in the States or Private Eye or Punch, maybe even Charlie Hebdo, um, a Simplissimus uh, in 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 Germany. So uh, that that's the kind of format it. It took it. It was about usually it was about sixteen pages long, printed on newsprint. Uh, usually had at least two pages of colour, but mainly black and white. Um, and uh, it became the world's largest, the world's most popular satirical magazine by the nineteen seventies and early eighties. I saw from your book then that it's has it. it- kind of ceased publication or it's kind of still in print i wasn't quite clear from the reading i was able to do so it's uh it, it was revived uh, more than once after the end of the soviet union um but it, it uh it didn't it didn't live very long in any of those post-soviet incarnations um i think the the rise of the the internet and the decline of the the soviet political uh, context meant that that crocodile never managed to find find its place in the post Soviet world. But yeah, it, it was it was revived more than once in the nineteen nineties and early two thousands. So you've you suggested here that we should look at the magazine as more than simply an organ of of state propaganda, which is a you know a thesis I think people would be interested in hearing about. So what? Why is that? What are the problems with looking at, at Crocodile as simply an arm of of state information? Well, I I should say that it, it unquestionably was an arm of state information. Um, we can't uh, we we can't we can't claim that that Crocodile um, wasn't a form of propaganda. Um, but but my thesis really is is that. If that is the case, then our de- definition of propaganda needs to be modified slightly. Um, the, the the standard Cold War interpretation the, uh, of the magazine is that uh, it was a, a kind of a, a weapon of state ideological warfare um, that that it communicated one way, um, that its message was unambiguous. Uh, that it was uh, uniformly ideologically correct, um, and that uh, essentially a variation on that as well is that it was it was not really satirical and not humorous, and that strikes me as being um, a, a, an unfortunate, unfair, and an in- inaccurate characterization of the magazine. If if that was the case then, for example, we can't explain why it was so popular, why people 
prized subscriptions to the magazine so highly, why every issue sold out as quickly as it did. Um, I should point out as well that the the, the, uh, the circulation rates for Crocodile were limited more by uh, paper shortages and, and printing limitations than by, by public demand. Um, so if if the magazine was uh, was genuinely popular and it it, it it seems to have been then the, exp- the then, then the propaganda paradigm as i call it uh, doesn't doesn't really do do justice to what the magazine uh, did for people what the magazine contained and what people uh, enjoyed in the magazine and so i i began to look a little bit more carefully at it and i discovered that that really the magazine was more complex than we might originally have have expected that propaganda uh, is is an insufficiently nuanced concept for us to uh, to apply to the magazine and understand it properly i was i was quite interested in your your point there that to some extent the magazine was kind of a guide as to what it was okay to laugh at uh, i was i was wondering if you could elaborate on that at all like what what kinds of things uh, if you read the magazine is it obviously okay to laugh at what are some of the big themes in there that come across in the cartoons well that's that's a that's a, an interesting question there there are t- sort of two dimensions to that i think i i say in in the book that that i think crocodile was a it was a guide to what it was okay to laugh at, and it was a guide to uh, what things uh, there were to be uh, seen in the Soviet Union that could be considered humorous. But but it was also a guide to to how to see them, how how to find them funny, and and how to how to look at these uh, these questions. So I'll start with the, the first point: the the things that there were in the Soviet Union to be to be seen and to be laughed at. Um, what I found was that lots of the same uh, themes that you find in so-called uh, underground jokes, popular jokes, anecdotes, uh, also appear in the magazine. So uh, shortages, breakdowns, technological problems, um, the, the the hypocrisy of, of bureaucracy and, and bureaucrats. Um, those, those themes are... Are, are very easy to find in the magazine. You, but you've also then uh, got a, a large number of cartoons which which poke fun gently at the themes that the regime was much more protective of. So, for example, space exploration in the 1950s and 60s was, was clearly a, a, a very high-profile discourse in the Soviet Union and, and a discourse with... Uh, some pretty significant ideological implications, you know, nam- namely that the, the, the that socialism was bringing about a higher form of technological society, which would bring material improvements for for the proletariat, not just in the USSR but but elsewhere. And and yet, Crocodile found that amusing. Crocodile found found ways to uh, poke holes in in that narrative. Um, if, so. Uh, for example, there are numerous cartoons of uh, of Soviet cosmonauts in space uh, actually encountering gods. When, of course, famously and perhaps uh, uh, apocryphally, um, Soviet com- cosmonauts didn't didn't find God uh, in outer space. Yet in Crocodile, they do. Um, similarly, when 
when Soviet citizens travel into into outer space in these cartoons, they don't leave worldly problems behind. They take those problems with them. So you find uh, alcoholics and lazy taxi drivers in space just the same as you do on (laughs) Earth. And so I, I, I found this I found this curious. Um, if if crocodile really was the the, the sort of uh, unthinking, uncritical mouthpiece of the Soviet state, then why is it that we find we find these um, these satirical visions uh, in the magazine? And so I, I sort of tried to try to explore that and tried to understand that. And and that brings me to the second point, really, which is the guide to guide to how to see things. There are a couple of theories of, of, of humor. One of the theories of humor says that um, that humor is a, a, a kind of uh, a, a safety valve, uh, that, that giving, giving people something to laugh at uh, reduces social tension and, and thereby, I suppose, from a, a, a sort of a, a political point of view, you, you diffuse social tension and you perhaps remove the threat of, of revolution or counter-revolution. I can I can certainly see the validity of that argument in relation to to crocodile, um, but but I don't think uh, I don't think the magazine served that function as a particularly high priority, at least not for the editors and and for the uh, the creators of the magazine. I think I think more this was uh, this this was one of the ways that people found to accommodate the regime, to live with the regime, uh, to, to have taken it uh, entirely seriously, I think would have been, would have been pretty difficult um, at, at times in the Soviet Union. And so, and so laughing, laughing at the shortages and laughing at the, the technological breakdowns was, was a way of accommodating the realities of everyday life in the Soviet Union. And I think the magazine, the existence of the magazine, and the, the state's uh, sponsorship of the magazine was a, was a kind of a, an acknowledgement that these these realities did exist, uh, and, and possibly possibly the pages of Crocodile are some of the only places where where you might find that official acknowledgement that these problems. Uh, hadn't been overcome. In other words, that the, the the promises of the political, the Soviet political project, weren't being realised. Uh, at least they weren't being realised everywhere uh, in everybody's everyday experience. Take something like equipment breakdowns, then, which I recall there was there was some of that referenced in your in your uh, example cartoon. So. I mean, is it is it possible for cartoons like that to go too far? Like, does the, the state at some point say, "Nah, that's 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 a bit too much realism"? Uh, on equipment breakdowns, I didn't find any evidence uh, that the state had uh, kind of reacted against Crocodile's treatment of that of that theme. But but certainly, when Crocodile depicted uh, the, the the people. At the center of the Soviet state, it was on dangerous territory, and even in the decade after Stalin, it risked uh, it risked response from the from the Soviet state. Uh, but uh, but on technological breakdowns, no, I didn't I didn't find any evidence of that. And one of the things I think is interesting about technological breakdowns uh, is is that you know superficially a cartoon depicting a broken down crane, for example. It doesn't seem like a particularly serious criticism of the state. 
you know the the, the workers in question are always anonymous uh, the the cranes in question are never uh, they're never geographically located anywhere um so there's there's no uh, there's no specific criticism of any any industrial enterprise in any of these cartoons um and and so it might seem as uh, as if it's a, a fairly uh, inconsequential criticism to make but what what i thought was interesting was to put, put put myself in the position of of a reader of the magazine and of course if you're subscribing and seeing several of these cartoons in issue after issue after issue the the collective weight of those of those criticisms uh, i think begins to build up and you start to uh, get a sense that that the that the magazine was making uh, a, a much more significant criticism of, of the Soviet political project than just criticizing broken down technology. But I, but I think, as I say, that, that when Crocodile depicted the, the person of a Soviet official, then that criticism was much, uh, much more explicit and, and probably much, uh, much, more, um, much more likely to draw a response from the regime. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off so you uh, you discussed uh, uh repin's famous barge haulers painting that, that was a wonderful cartoon uh kind of playing off of that so i'm just so i'm thinking with your point there then that like a cartoon like that is okay because it might be spoofing an individual factory or it might be kind of a broad, you know, criticism of state management, but we can get away with that because there's not any specific people referenced in it. Yeah, I, th- I think that, I think that's true. But of course, you, you know, you, you know, to use another visual metaphor, you sort of zoom out and, and consider the criticism that's really being made. And, and actually it, it, it's a much more fundamental criticism of soviet state management than just a criticism of of some anonymous state industrial enterprise you kind of touched there on the issue of of reception you said you were putting you know putting yourselves and trying to put yourself in the shoes of of readers so what how, how do you study reception of something like this what what kinds of sources are available to see you know when people read the magazine at home in the evening or whatever how how are they internalizing what it means well that that's something that that fascinates me and if i could if i could uh, develop this project if i could if i could follow this project up then i think that's that's the direction i'd like to go in i'd really like to understand how it was how it was consumed so I, I began investigating that. I did some, oh, you might call it ethnographic research, but I, I, I spoke to some people who uh, who'd read the magazine uh, in in their in their youths, 
uh, and 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 interviewed them, uh, asked them questions about what they thought of the magazine, and it became clear that 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 project would just balloon beyond the scope of 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 this one. So that yeah. that was kind of on the back burner. So in this project, I used the magazine as my source. So I th- th- what one of the things about the magazine is that it was. Um, it was self-reflexive, uh, but it was also, I think, I, I use the term co-constructed. So the uh, the magazine itself is is a is a collaborative project. Really, many of the cartoons in each issue were produced by readers. Uh, many uh, articles and letters and poems and so on were were sent in unsolicited. Uh, all sent in as part of competition entries, and so the magazine itself reflects the way its consumers, or at least uh, uh, some of its consumers, uh, saw it. So I was interested to see how those so-called prosumer, those sort of amateur uh, professional texts, were produced, and to understand the uh, the similarities and the differences between the uh, the contributions that that were made by amateurs and the contributions made by by professional producers, uh, and one of the things that I found is that that contributing to the magazine was a was a, a pretty popular pastime, at least for a constituency in in the Soviet Union. Hundreds of thousands of people made entries into into cartoon competitions, for example, and there were several cartoon competitions over over the years. Every issue contained at, at least two or three, and and sometimes far more contributions by by readers in the soviet union and and abroad and and so the magazine did reflect the way its its readers uh perceived it now what we can't know of course uh is how it was perceived by those people who didn't who didn't uh contribute to the magazine who didn't feel compelled to to draw a cartoon and send it off as an entry to a to a competition and so as i say that's one of the things i would uh, dearly love to know, but in this project, at least, I, I didn't have have the scope for that. I got to wondering on that same theme: um, have have rejected submissions been preserved? Because it, it occurred to me that would be quite an interesting source base too. It would, uh, and another another interesting source would be to compare. I should explain that readers quite often wrote in suggesting themes for cartoons, and those themes were then taken by professional artists and rendered as cartoons and published. And so those those uh, contributions, those ideas were always credited into the magazine. But what I'd love to do is 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 uncover the original suggestion, the original submission, compare it with the, the professional rendering of the idea and, and see how faithfully or, uh, or or not, as the case may be, the the original uh, was was produced in the magazine. I think that would be fascinating. Um, in answer to your question, as far as I'm aware... Crocodile did not keep records of those things. As far as I'm aware, there was no archive of letters and suggestions and cartoon submissions for competitions and so on. Certainly in the in the Russian state archives, uh, there's only, I think, three three files on Crocodile and they they don't appear to contain any of that material. Well, that's too bad. That's the, it would be quite a gold mine uh, to be able to look at that stuff. But uh, I guess we should just be glad that anything survives. Yeah, <laughs> given given all the things that could happen to sources, you know, I suppose we should just be glad that that anything survives at all. Well, I think uh, it, it says something interesting about the way the editors and and the uh, the 
well, yeah, the editorial staff uh, conceived of their own work. I think that when these when these suggestions came in, they weren't preserved. They, um, as far as I can tell, they um, they were disposed of, which suggests that uh, for them it's the ideas uh, that are important and and the magazine itself uh, rather than rather than any paperwork. Um, but I think it also says something about the nature of printed printed jokes, the nature of printed satire. These these magazines. Uh, weren't, I don't think, intended to be treated with any special reverence in the way some other state publications might have been. Uh, you do find uh, that some people kept their entire collections and had them bound, but largely these magazines haven't survived. As I said, they're printed on newsprint paper. Um, and so I'd imagine that that most of them probably got thrown thrown away fairly soon after they'd been read. Uh, certainly, in in my collection, I've got I've got lots of issues which were used as coloring paper by by small Soviet children at some stage. So, um, <laughs> the fact that the editors uh, didn't need didn't feel the need to to keep a record of their work, I think, tells us that that they viewed it in a similar way. So, on then the the subject of of imagining somebody sitting there in the evening reading the the magazine, like. What kinds of everyday problems? We mentioned equipment breakdowns as, as one example, but what other kinds of everyday problems are going to are people going to read this magazine and say, ah, the people who write this magazine they get the problems in my life? Well, that's uh, that's another interesting question. Um, there, just to, to preface this, I think there are certainly a large numbers of large number of cartoons. Which uh, which probably wouldn't resonate with with your average Soviet uh, reader. There are a large number of cartoons depicting uh, geopolitics and ideological confrontation. Having said that, uh, certainly in the second half of each issue of the magazine, towards the back, you'd find a large number of of relatively small cartoons, relatively simple, uh, usually just two color black and white. And these are cartoons uh, about much more mundane issues, so people's love lives, uh, jilted, jilted, lo- jilted lovers, and so on. Uh, you find cartoons uh, a- a- about um, uh, marital—what should we say? Uh, marital difficulties. People being locked out of the house by their wives when they come back from <laughs> come back from uh, from somewhere too late. Uh, cartoons. Uh, about uh, overcrowded apartment blocks, nosy neighbours, noisy neighbours, uh, and so on. So I, th- I think, I mean, it's been it's been said before that these this is this is the stuff, this is the raw material for cartoonists all over the world at any time, and and certainly you find it in Crocodile as well. So one of my one of the the kind of the biggest question I had. Uh, after I, I read your book was it it occurred to me that in some sense uh, uh, Soviet ideology is kind of fundamentally incompatible with the whole idea of satire to begin with um, I was remembering reading uh, good old Hayden White uh, a number of years ago uh, where he's talking about how a satirical plot is fundamentally incompatible with some kind of radical ideology and, and so on. So I guess what I, what I was wondering, I hope I'm making sense here is like, 
is there some inherent tension with having a satirical publication in this ideological context at all? Uh, or, or is there really, um, you know, the, the, you know, people that evaluate these things at the state level, do they not really see any real problem with having something like this? Just seems like a, like a satirical publication is almost bound just by the nature of the genre to get itself in trouble periodically. Yeah, that, that's, I think you're probably right. That is the, the central question um, with, with Crocodile. And it's something that, that scholars have, have, uh, have considered certainly i think most scholars have slightly dodged the issue in that they've said well as you suggested uh satire and a a communist ideology or maybe a totalitarian state are incompatible and therefore what we see in crocodile can't be satire um it has to be propaganda instead or it has to be uh, a, a state weapon uh, it has to be the state using cartoons to sort of police the boundaries between the uh, the acceptable and the unacceptable, and I think I, I I think that's true to a degree, but I think it, it's it's more complicated than that because what I find in Crocodile, at least in in some of the images, is genuine genuinely satirical. Um, so that there are there are treatments of Stalinism, for example, uh, in the 1960s, which are as as incisive as anything you'd find anywhere anywhere else in the Soviet state. Um, and so I think it's it's uh, it's inaccurate, and it, it's as I say, it's unfair to to write it off as as not being satirical. Um, to, to, to come back to your question, though, about whether there's something fundamentally incompatible about satire in a, in a Soviet state, um, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think if we, if we, take, if we accept that view, then what we say is that there, was, uh, that there was nothing humorous in the Soviet state. There was nothing humorous about the Soviet state, and then that, therefore that there was nothing to laugh at. Or that the Soviet state had such a uh, a rigidly ideologically serious view of itself that it tolerated no laughter. Um, yet we know, for example, that Soviet leadership laughed at themselves, laughed at each other. Um, we have we have records from the Soviet archives of the cartoons that they drew of each other and handed handed them around the Politburo table. Um, we know that that Stalin. Uh, suggested themes for cartoons for Crocodile. Boris Yefimov um, very, very famously and repeatedly told the story of, of how he drew a cartoon based on Stalin's suggestion. Um, and Crocodile simply wouldn't have been uh, allowed to continue in print for so long if it had fundamentally contradicted the the, the political aims of the regime. Um and and so no, I, th- I think I think satire did have a place in the Soviet states. Now, in, according to Soviet theory, Soviet satire and humor theory, uh, satire was uh, just one of the mechanisms for achieving social and political change. That by by pointing out hypocrisies, by pointing out problems, and by by uh, giving people uh, the 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 language, I suppose, or or the what I call it the the power of seeing satirically uh if people had the power 
to see something satirically. They could laugh at it. And by laughing at it, they were they were sort of helping uh, themselves to identify what it was about the situation that needed to be changed or needed to be improved. Um, and so I, I say in the conclusion that I think um, the, the, the fact that Crocodile criticised these things uh, wasn't kind of... Uh, it, it wasn't um, toadying or... Uh, or, or blandishment or anything like that. I think it. I think it was a sign that the regime was willing to acknowledge uh, its problems and to to uh, inhabit its problems. It was willing to own its problems because, at least in one arm of its publishing uh, fleet, uh, I'm mixing my metaphors horribly there. But at, at least in one publication, it, it was acknowledging um, officially that these problems did exist. Um, and was in inviting people to laugh at its problems. So what we talked a little bit about some of the domestic issues that people might, uh, you know, find being satirized in the magazine. So what about what are some of the, the most prominent themes as far as uh, when it when it targets, say, you know, the United States or something like that? You know, you brought up the space race. Uh, there are other there are other kind of major themes internationally that, that find a lot of, of spoofing in the magazine. They they certainly certainly are. Um, they they changed over time, um, but the the consistent themes are uh, American capitalism, and uh, of course, it bundled up in that in that vision of American capitalism is uh, a critique of uh, I suppose you might call it imperialism, imperialist attitudes, and those are those are British imperial attitudes, but but also the kind of the slightly different American imperial attitudes uh, that, that, that Crocodile uh, was fond of, of revisiting. There's also um, the alliance, the, the sort of imagined alliance really between the United States and Nazism uh, is one of the things that I'd be interested in looking at uh, in more detail, but the, the evolution of, of the, the figure of the Nazi in, in Crocodile from before 1945 to to by let's say 1948 1949 the nazi be, becomes uh, an ally of uh, the the american figure and so you get this kind of merging of the uh, the indicators of those ideologies so i call them tabs of identity borrowing a phrase from david Lowe, that there there are certain certain uh, certain tabs that a cartoonist would would add to a figure in order to to indicate a political allegiance, and those tabs uh, can can become uh, can be can be used quite creatively. So different tabs can be added to to different uh, characters. And so, for example, it, it's entirely possible by the nineteen fifties and sixties to have a, an American capitalist businessman uh, very very closely allied with an American. Uh, a bomb hugging warmonger, also allied with a, a, a sort of skeletal uh, Nazi figure, um, and and so those those I think are the the the, the three main themes uh, as far as uh, the rest of the world is concerned, or rather as far as Crocodile's vision of the rest of the world is is concerned. And so, what I was interested in understanding is how how the magazine could contain those 
those apparently ideologically opposed visions, uh, the the criticism, the the very aggressive, uh, ideologically loaded criticism of uh, America, for example, contained in the same magazine, just you know, just just a few pages away uh, from those criticisms of the Soviet state. Uh, and I, I call it in the book a kind of conflicted satiricism, a conflicted official satiricism that the magazine was was able uh, and was comfortable with with that that apparent contradiction uh, in its in its pages. Did you did you find that that issues of the magazine printed uh, during the war? Do, do those have a fundamentally different flavor to them as the um you know, is is there still you know domestic satire uh, going on, or is that kind of eschewed in in favor of you know focusing on on your enemies uh, abroad? I've a very different, very different flavor. It's almost almost a different magazine, really. Um, certainly, I think uh, the label propaganda could be uh, easily applied to Crocodile during the Second World War, and 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 certainly it's it's very aggressively anti-Nazi um, and the the you know the grand alliance is depicted very very favorably uh, but as i suggested very very soon after the war that changes and certainly by the 1950s uh, and early 1960s domestic satire has a much higher profile uh, really really after about 1958 with the with the um, accession of a, of a new editor in 1958 um, crocodile's crocodile's tone and its content changed quite significantly so uh, I was curious here then, um, what uh, are, are you planning on carrying this project forward then in some of the, the directions you've already suggested? Um, I, would, I would like to. I've so far looked, uh, looked back before, before this period. So I, I wrote uh, an, an article for Slavic Review on uh, the uh, performativity of graphic satire uh, during 1917, and I've looked beyond the end of the Soviet Union to try and understand internet era graphic satire. Uh, so, looking at uh, cartoons uh, related to sport in the uh, in the year 2016 that, that, that are published online. Um, so, I've, I've tried to sort of broaden my my scope a little bit. Um, I'm involved or in, at least in the early stages of involvement with a kind of global history of the political cartoon looking in particular at the at the russian region um but i'm, I'm also interested uh in in practices of seeing so not not looking uh, uh at the soviet context at all but just understanding how how we uh how we understand what we see and how that changes what we see in the future, how we interpret what we see in the future. Hmm. Those sound like interesting, interesting directions to go. Uh, maybe by way of, of wrapping up here, I, it seems like a good way to, to end our chat by just asking you, what, what do you think is the funniest thing you've ever seen in, uh, in crocodile? That, that seems an appropriate subject for reflection given the topic. Um, I wish I wish you could see it, but I I have the perfect picture in my mind. Um, it's a front cover image from around about 1972, 1973, I believe. Uh, and we have 
apparently it's one scene, but there is action going on at, at, at either side of this scene. On the left-hand side, we have um, a, a gang of workers laying down a railway track, and they've clearly been working very, very hard. We can see the, the evidence of, uh, of their work, and we can see the train track stretching away into the distance. They're obviously uh, intending to join up with another gang, who've also been working on a similar project. And in the right-hand side of the scene, we can see a, a road-laying gang uh, who also obviously been working very, very hard. And we, we see them, the, viewer, the viewer's uh, image is of the moment where they meet each other, they look up from their work and they realise that something's gone wrong with the planning of this project because half of them were expecting to build a railroad and the other half of them were expecting to build a highway. And clearly, clearly this project isn't going to be uh, easy to complete. So I think, I think that, that sort of, uh, that, that for me is, is kind of, kind of typical of, of crocodile, that kind of irreverence and lightheartedness. But, uh, but if you think about it, there's a, there's a, there's a pretty deep, uh, political critique going on at, uh, underneath it oh certainly i mean the the onion doesn't bill itself as the world's finest news source for nothing <laughs> uh there's uh yeah that's i have i have not seen that one that one certainly does hit home is that i was trying to remember now was that printed during the era then where they were trying to build the uh the, the bam the um oh the the uh Baikal Amur mainline. I think it might be. Yeah, yeah. I yeah think that, it might be. that sounds like the right uh, the right era to uh, to me. So, is there in case anybody was was interested in following up on this, in addition to the the book you've written, is there any good place on the internet where you can access you know at least covers or you know excerpts from issues? Um, when I first started my project, it was very very hit and miss. Uh, you could find the odd issue online as a PDF. Um, but now, uh, since I think about 2015 or 2016, Eastview have the, the complete uh, collection of Crocodile digitized. Um, and so your, your university library can, can purchase a subscription to yeah, the, the complete archive of Crocodile, which is a, 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 wealth, of, a wealth of images uh, and, and text. Well, thank you, John. I, I was not uh, aware of that, so I, I may check that out myself. So, well, thanks for thanks for uh, for having a, a chat with me about your book. Is there, is there anything else uh, in the book that we haven't covered that you'd really like to talk about here? Uh, one of the things that I that I enjoyed finding out about myself was the aircraft, the crocodile aircraft from the nineteen thirties, um, and I, I tried to sort of tried to understand what was going on with that uh, and I tried to I theorized it as a, a transmedia extension um, but if you if you're interested in uh, something a little bit quirky then perhaps um, the the story of how crocodile sponsored and built it a, a flying red crocodile in the 1930s um, might be a, an interesting way into to thinking more about the magazine uh, and its satirical functions <laughs> Well, thank you. Uh, this is—I thoroughly enjoyed uh, reading your book. So, thanks for having this uh, this chat with us. 
Oh, thank you for having me. It, uh, it's been a solitary project at times, but I've, I really enjoy getting the chance to talk about it when, when, uh, when I find people interested. Okay, thank you. Great, thank you. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.